you very much. It's an honor to be here with you. If you want to follow in the Bible, Luke chapter 8, um, they're, they're going to be getting this so I can put the scriptures up here, but um, in case there's a malfunction or something, we'll, we'll start with Luke chapter 8. I want, I want to talk to you tonight about the reason I'm talking about church. I would never ever do this on a Sunday morning. I'm talking to leaders of the church. And so I want to give you a different way of thinking about the church. I want to give you something. Because see, everybody, everybody in this room, the only reason you come to church on a Sunday night at 7.30 is that you want to see the church go forward. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is that we all want to see the church go forward, but no one wants to see it change from what we like. And so there's a, there's a tension that we have to hold um, with that. And so I want, I want to talk to you about some of the things that the New Testament writers insisted was true about a resurrected Christ. I want to talk to you about the implications of resurrection. I want to talk to you about what that means for how, how we live in Bay City and what that means for our churches. I want to talk to you about um, what the greatest evidence for uh, the, the resurrected Christ is. And by the way, the greatest evidence for resurrection is not the Bible. Um, the, the Bible's credibility rests on resurrection. So, uh, you know, if you're talking to a believer and you say, well, the Bible says Jesus rose, they'll say amen. If you talk to an unbeliever, if an unbeliever asks you, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible is actually your worst evidence. The best evidence is a changed life. The best evidence is, well, I think we can get into all this. But you see that guy over there? That guy used to be like this. And then he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, and now he's like this. That's, that's, that's how I... That's how I know. And so if you bear with me, um, I want to read a passage that, um, that that doesn't sound like it's about the church at all. But if you just trust me, to give, give me there's a method to my madness. And give me give me about forty minutes, and we can we, we can do this. All right. So Luke chapter eight. Um, this is what it says. After Jesus, uh, after, oh, sorry, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Because nothing energizes your ministry like demon-possessed sick women, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's great. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. I guess someone kept it. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own Means. Now, what's odd about the scripture is that if you look before it, it has nothing to do with it. And if you look after it, it has nothing to do with it. Literally, it's two or three verses thrown right there into the middle of, of, of Luke. And it has nothing before it that matters, and nothing after it that matters. Nothing literally gives context to it. It's just sort of like Luke goes, hey, here you go. Just If you're wondering how Jesus financed his ministry, he did it with formerly demon-possessed sick women. That's how, that, that's how he did it, which is just so odd. And it's so countercultural. In a day where it was illegal for, for most women to even learn how to read, for somebody to be paying the bills, that is odd. I travel the world. I, I, I go all over the planet. I, I left my house January 7th. I'm not back to my own home until October 25th. And we're booked up five and six nights a week in between. I know what it costs to travel this world. It's not cheap. You know, people say, oh, you should get a wife. Well, they don't know really what they're talking about. But nonetheless, they say, oh, you should get a wife. But see, if I get a wife, theoretically, my expenses would, would double. But everybody knows, everybody knows that in reality, you would triple, right? That's how, that's how that works, right? Well, but Jesus traveled with 12 people, right? So Jesus traveled with 12 people. You imagine the bill. So, so Jesus shows up in Hastings, right? And they have a taste for Thai food, so they go to the Thai silk. And 13 people order meals, plus some other people. And, and evidently, when it came time for the bill to be paid, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was standing there going, I got this. 
I got this. What's good? That is so countercultural. So the question is, is why would Luke put that in there? And, and the other question is, how is that even possible? And the other question, the most obvious question from a Bible perspective is, is there a story underneath this story that makes the story make more sense? Because nothing around it makes it make sense. So is there a story underneath the story that makes the story make more sense? And the answer is yes. And I happen to know the story, and I'd like to start share it with you right now, this story actually starts in, um, I don't know, uh, 57 BC or so. There was a guy named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas chose Julius Caesar's side in a civil war between him and a guy named Pompey. That was a really good move because Julius Caesar ended up winning that. And so when, he, when Julius Caesar won, he honored Herod Antipas by, uh, sorry, Antip- Herod Antipater by giving him charge of all of Israel. So he gave him charge of all of Israel just as a token king. Like, look, we're really in charge, but just so you know, you know, you can be the token king. Well, Herod Antipater died in 36 BC, and they handed it to his son, a guy named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was a guy that we're all familiar with. He was the Herod that was the king when Jesus was born. He was also a lunatic. One historian said that it was easier to be a pig than his son. There's one story from history about Herod the Great had a dream about three of his sons plotting to take his kingdom from him. So he took them swimming in the front yard swimming pool and he drowned them all. They were 6, 7, and 10. Okay, This guy was an absolute maniac. He died in 4 AD. And when he died, the Roman Empire said, here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to we're going to divide the kingdom into your three sons. And so they gave the southern kingdoms called Judea to a guy named Archelaus, which was one of his sons. Then they gave Galilee to a guy named Herod Antipas. That gets a little confusing because literally everybody's named Herod, but it was Herod Antipater who was then proceeded who was then proceeded by Herod um, Herod the Great, who was then Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was his son. They gave him Galilee. Then they gave his son Philip, the upper north eastern side of the thing. That's where Caesarea Philippi is. Literally a city built for Caesar from Philip. It was essentially Philip built a city in Caesar's honor. And just as Caesar would never forget what he did, he said he called it Caesarea Philippi. And that he was an ultimate, just an ultimate butt kisser kind of a thing, right? And so, so you've got Archelaus in the south, you've got Herod Antipas in Galilee, and then you have uh, Philip in the north. Now, um, do you understand why now what, what happened was Archelaus by 23 AD was removed by the Roman Empire because he did not handle the, 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 the Messianic rebellions very well. There was 24 different messiahs at a 140 year period of time. In other words, there was 24 different people claiming to be anointed of God to free the Jews from Roman oppression and they all met the same thing. Archelaus did a horrible job. There was lots of riots and different things. And so the Caesars said, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. And so they removed Archelaus and they banished him to Gaul, which is modern day France. They, they, they banished him there and they put a, another guy in charge, a particularly brutal guy named Pilate in 23 AD. Do you see now, in Jesus' trial, when Pilate found out that Jesus was a Galilean, he said that he's a Galilean, then we need to get Herod down here because I don't want to overstep Herod's authority. He's in Jerusalem, which is under my authority, but if he's from Galilee, he's actually under Herod's authority. There was all this confusion over who had charge of Jesus at that moment. And that's because Pilate was only in charge of Judea, Herod Antipas was in charge of Galilee, and Philip was in charge of the north and the east. Now, historians debate on just how rich Herod Antipas was. Now, it is in the debate that Herod Antipas was the richest man who's ever lived. Okay? Now, nobody really knows exactly how rich he was, but can we agree that if you're in the discussion for possibly the richest dude who's ever lived in history, you're really, really, really rich? One historian said that Herod Antipas had 50,000 people on his personal payroll. 50,000 people on his personal payroll. I wouldn't think there'd be 50,000 employees of New Zealand. So, I don't, I mean, so in other words, Herod Antipas had more people on his personal payroll 
than it would be on the federal government's payroll in all of New Zealand. That guy is very, very wealthy. So he was in the discussion for being the richest guy who's ever lived. Now think about this, right? If you're in the discussion for being the richest man who's ever lived, what do you need? You need a CFO. Did Herod Antipas have a CFO? Yes, he did. The guy's name was Kuza. Kuza was in charge of all the employees underneath Herod's personal payroll. Now, if you are the CFO of one of the richest people who's ever lived, what is your salary? A whole lot. And if you're married, who has access to that money? Why? <laughs> now, turns, turns out, turns out that Kuza's wife would rather hang out with formerly demon-possessed sick women following a peasant rabbi around Galilee proclaiming a new way to live. She found that more compelling than hanging out with the Roman aristocracy. And she just happens to have the money to finance the thing. Where did she get the money from? From her husband's access to Herod's personal payroll. Now, Luke 13 says that Herod Antipas was seeking to kill Jesus. And remember what Jesus said? He said, you tell that fox where I am. In history, Herod Antipas was called the fox. He was called the fox. He says, you tell that fox where I am. By the way, Pilate was called the eagle. So remember when Jesus said things like, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head? This was a political opposition sort of statement. So Jesus, Jesus so what Luke is pointing out here, right in the middle of, of the book of Luke in Luke chapter 8, is that the way Jesus financed his ministry turns out to be that the guy trying to kill Jesus turns out was indirectly financing Jesus' ministry through the wife of his CFO. Right now, here's my point. You say, Shane, that was mildly entertaining, but honestly, what does that have to do with church? And, and, and the answer is everything. If we want to build vibrant churches, there's a tension we must live with. And that tension is this. We must always be surprised with the kind of people God uses. But in another sense, we should never be surprised by the kind of people God uses. The, the, the more stringent you draw the lines around who God is with and who God isn't, who, who God might use and who God would never use, the more we do things like that, the more we box God in like that, we might miss the fact that he might be using the wife of our arch enemy to actually finance the entire thing, right? We might be saying no when Jesus is trying to say yes. If you want to build vibrant churches... You should always be surprised. There should be at least once a month moments where you look at someone's life and you go, wow, well, I never, ever saw God using that person to do that thing. That is amazing. That is amazing. And when your church is experiencing that, you don't need to focus so much on doctrine. Because doctrine, I'm all for doctrine. I'm a theologian myself. But doctrine in and of itself is boring, uncompelling, and pedantic. What is compelling is when we point out the spirit of the risen Christ changing lives literally everywhere we see it. This is what church is. Now, Paul, um, I'm assuming this isn't going to work. Okay, don't worry. So, Paul, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 1, this is what he says about church. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. All right, sorry, the slides aren't working. But I'm in a room full of people who know their Bible. Alright, so here we go, right? So so this is what Paul says in Roman in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance is holy people, and it's incomparably great power to those of us who, who believe. In other words, Paul Paul framed Christianity not as creating new realities. 
but people being enlightened to what is already true. In other words, Christianity is not an exercise in creating a new reality. It's not like God didn't love you and then you said a magic prayer and then he loves you. That's ridiculous. Jesus provided salvation for you before the foundation of the world. And the moment you got saved is simply the moment you realized what he had done for you all along. There's a difference between ownership and possession. If you have $11 billion in your backyard, do you own it? Yes, you do. Do you possess it? No, you do not. But if I said, I have proof, you have $11 billion in your backyard, what would you spend the night doing? Digging. Urgently. You would go, get a shovel, and you would start digging. And then when you dig, you would be searching for what you hoped for, but you have not seen as yet. That is faith. To be saved by faith is to be saved in the pursuit to possess what's been yours all along. Anyway, I pray that your heart be enlightened to the great riches of his glorious power, his great inheritance to those of us. And he keeps going. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, and every name that has ever been invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul says, listen, here's what the church is about. The church is about proclaiming the mighty strength that raised Jesus from the dead. And this strength isn't new. This strength is actually the same mighty strength he used to create the world. It was pre-existent before the foundation of the world. And what you just saw is not a new reality. It is simply a manifestation of an old one. Jesus, Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. Jesus just simply showed you what God was always like all along. This is what Jesus was doing. And he, he keeps going. And he says, in case you missed it, this mighty strength is above everything you can imagine. Every name that's ever been invoked in this present age or the next, every rule, every authority, all power, all might, all dominion, it's above all of that. Now watch what he keeps going. This is, I think, probably verse 22 by now. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. Now I've heard that definition of church before. The church is the body of Christ. But for whatever reason, I have never heard, nor have I seen it before, even though I've read it before, I never saw it. I've never seen this definition of church. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what is the church? The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Have you ever heard that definition of church? I haven't. And I think the reason I haven't is because it doesn't make great bumper stickers. What makes better bumper stickers is Turner Burn. My way or the highway. We're in, you're out, we're right, you're wrong. That is the exact opposite of how Paul framed the church. Paul said the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now that has huge implications for how we think about church. What that means is, is, is Jesus, is the spirit of Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead, is it at work in all of us? Yes it is. Why? Because we're everything in every way. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ is also at work in whatever, whoever is driving that truck right now, down on Mahu Road. Right now. Whoever that guy is. Whether he's saved, whether he's not saved, whatever the, wherever he is with God, Jesus is already at work in his heart because he is everything in every way and he matters to God. Our job in building the church is not to deliver Jesus like a pizza. 
Our job is to affirm the spirit of the risen Christ is already at work in everybody we meet. The spirit of, let's say this way, Jesus is already at work in whatever mission field you will ever, ever engage in. You want to build a church and have Lot North? You're not bringing Jesus to have Lot North. That is absurd. You want to build a church and have Lot North? It takes realizing that the spirit of the risen Christ is already at work in every person in have Lot North. And your job is to go in and cooperate with whatever the spirit of Christ is already doing in those people because they are everything. This, has, this takes the pressure off of us to deliver Jesus. Like, oh, hi, you didn't know Jesus yesterday, but I'm here, and so when I come in, um, I'm, I'm going to bring Jesus to you. No, that's too much pressure because that presumes that you're going to present a perfect Jesus. That is absurd. Our job is not to deliver Jesus like a pizza. Our job is to affirm the Spirit of the risen Christ who's already at work in everything in every way and help people name what that is. Is. This has huge implications for us. Essentially, Paul's saying that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply showed you the mighty power that existed before the foundation of the world. And he manifested what God was always like. Christianity is never an exercise in creating new realities. Christianity is an exercise of cooperating with the Spirit of the risen Christ that, that moves you from glory to glory to glory to glory. That Jesus is already at work in everything in every way, including me, including you, including your cousin Earl, his brother Randy, the wicked ex-wife Joy, and the cousin Melissa Donner Crabman. Yes, even them. Why? Because they are everything in every way, and they matter to God. It's good. Now, I want to sort of dig into the passage a little bit more. He uses some weird language, right? Now, remember, I've talked about this here before. Remember, when you're reading Scripture, you always have to consider historical art, right? Like, like the Bible's not a static record of what God is. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what people thought God was at the time that was such a dynamic leap towards the right direction of the final word of God and the risen Christ that God gave it life by breathing on it. That's called inspiration, okay? So the idea, is that is the Bible the word of God? Yes, it is. Is it the final word of God? Nope. The final word of God is the risen Christ, right? And so what you're looking at in the scriptures is these pictures that, that move us to the, to the risen Christ. So you always have to consider the historical arc. So when Paul was writing Ephesians, a couple questions. One, when Paul was writing Ephesians, did he think he was writing the Bible? The answer is no. What did he think he was doing? He was writing a letter to a place and probably just hoping to God it would get there. It's not like the postal service was actually reliable. That the, the, the guy delivering the letter could have easily been eaten by a mountain lion on the way there, right? It wasn't until 300 years later that the Council of Nicaea took his letters and made it into what we, you know, put 14 of his letters into what we would call the Bible. So when you're reading Paul's epistles, one of the things you have to ask is, is do we, what things in Paul's epistles do we see in every one of them? And what things in Paul's epistles are only in one thing, right? Because if it's, only in, if it's only in the letter to Corinth, but it's not in the letter anywhere else, that should tell you that there was a problem in Corinth that wasn't going on anywhere else. So you have to ask these sort of questions. And what you find is, is that, is that in Ephesians, he uses language that he doesn't use anywhere else. He uses things like mighty power, dominion, authority, strength, power and authority, names being invoked. You don't see him use that imagery in any other of his letters. You see him use other things to define the risen Christ. But in Ephesians, you see him use political power sort of words, religious power. He uses a lot of authority, power sort of words. And the, and the question is why? And the answer is, one quick look at the history of Ephesus, 
can tell us why. Ephesus was literally the epicenter of all things in the Roman Empire. You essentially had Rome, and then you had Ephesus. Ephesus was the Wall Street of the day. It was where everybody bought, sold, and traded. The reason why was because it was on the port. So whether you were coming from the east, like with India and China, or coming from the west, like with Gaul and Italy and things like that, they could come together in Ephesus and they could buy and sell and trade, and then they would go back and, and rebuy and sell and trade and make money. That way it was the center of, uh, of trade. It was where the Roman archives were kept. It was the epicenter of political power. It was the epicenter of economic Power. It was also the epicenter of religious power. The main goddess of the region was a goddess named Artemis. In other areas, she was called Kibola. We talked about that, uh, I think, last night. She was also called Diana in certain places. The temple to the goddess Artemis is one of the most incredible things you could ever imagine seeing. It was unbelievable. If you see this, you realize that the people of Ephesus thought they had their hands around power. They thought they understood real power. They're like, hey, we, we're Ephesus, man. We understand power. We've got Artemis here. We've got the Roman archives here. We've got the epicenter of the trade world here. We understand everything. Domitian put his number two headquarters there. The Roman emperor, this, um, this should help you understand Revelation a little bit. The Roman emperor Domitian in 82 AD, he made a law. The center of the trade was called the Agora. The Agora, that's where we get the word agoraphobia from. It's literally a fear of the marketplace. And, and the center of the trade was the Agora. So Domitian the advisor said, hey man, you ought to raise taxes in the Agora because there's a lot of buying. It's like putting a toll road on the market highway. He said, I don't want to raise taxes because that'll make me unpopular. However, I am the Son of God. And since I'm the Son of God and I'm God in flesh, people should give me an offering of worship before they buy and sell. So, here's what he did. He proved he was God in flesh. Outside of the Agora was this huge pantheon of the gods. It was an open-air arena of the gods. And what he did was he put a roof over top, the open arenas of the gods, and over the top of the roof he put a statue of himself that was five times larger than any of the gods under his feet and he said, see, I'm not only the king of kings, I am the lord of lords and if I wasn't the god of gods, then the other, these other gods would have stopped me. And so he proved that he was the biggest god in the whole of the universe by putting a big old statue of himself over the top of these other gods. Now, most of the world thought that, except for the Jews. The Jews just thought they were statues. They, they, they weren't impressed by that at all. So the Domitian made a law. And the, the, the law of Domitian was, you have to give an offering to me as God before you can buy and sell. Here's what he did. He put four churches, ecclesias, around the Agora. To poke fun at the Jews, he had his ten mightiest deeds inscribed on two stone tablets. Essentially, you have your ten, I have mine. He did that, and then he, the law was, before you can buy and sell, you had to come in and give an offering to him as the Son of God before you could buy, sell, and trade. The problem with that is it's hard to police. So what he did is he put acolytes in these churches, and their job was to witness these people giving offerings to Domitian as the Son of God. When they witnessed them giving their offering, they would give them a mark in their forehand or in their forehead. It was sort of like a, a bar ID badge saying, I, I've been checked. I can now, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I can now buy, sell, and trade. Now, the Jews hated this, and so they had a nickname for Domitian. His nickname was called the Beast Who Comes from land and sea. The reason was, was because no matter if you were coming from India or if you were coming from France, the statue of Domitian was the first thing you saw. So they called him the beast who comes from land and sea. So in 82 AD, in order to buy and sell in the Agora, you had to take the mark of the beast. We heard that one. Oh, by the way, you guys aren't bored, are you? Everybody's okay? Okay, so check this out, right? This is really interesting. So, um, so tell me where you've heard this before, right? Domitian, to prove his authority, 
over the entire empire. <laughs> he was the most sports fan. Here's what he did. He instituted an Olympic Games in his honor. Why? Because every other god had an Olympic Games. So why not him? And he called it humbly. He was such a narcissist. He called it the Domitian Games, right? And at the Domitian Games, here's what he did. He divided the Roman Empire into 12 districts. And those 12 districts each had to give up two delegates to come and entertain him in a sport called the Domitian Games. Mm-hmm. Where have you heard this before, right? So, so 24 people show up at the Roman Colosseum to participate in the Domitian Games. When you showed up, oh, by the way, the only district in the entire empire absolved from giving two delegates was the capital city. Mm. So, um, so when you showed up to watch the Domitian Games, you were given two things. You were given white robes and gold crowns. Why? Because Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. You would then go in and you would sing the praises of Domitian as a part of the huge choir. And then after you sing the song, it went something like this. We praise you, O Domitian, O Son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O Son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. And after you were done singing the song, everybody in the Roman Coliseum would take their gold crowns off and throw them at his feet. Think about your Roman Empire movies. The Caesar's always there, and the people are throwing things at his feet. Oh, by the way, Domitian also hired 24 people full-time to walk around and just tell them how good he was. Think about Revelation chapter 4. And I saw the 24 elders sitting around the throne. And we were wearing white robes and gold crowns. And we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea. And we were singing to him a new song. In other words, John says, I've seen how this ends. And Domitian doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. By the way, the Domitian gains... Um, ended with a four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. And everybody died along the way. And at the end of the Domitian Games, there was one victor, the winner of the Domitian Games. They were the only one who lived. And by the way, oh, oh, the, the, last event, the, the last event of the Domitian Games was a four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. And then what would happen? Once the victor was declared, the last scene was, uh, was a scene where two characters would come in. One was called Death, and one was called Hades, and they would come in on horses and clean up the dead bodies off of the arena floor. And I saw death and hell descending like on a horse. These are all references to the Domitian Games. By the way, the Domitian Games went on until 92 AD when a girl from District 12 took on the capital city with a bow and arrow. <laughs> These people understood power. So Paul's writing to a city that was surrounded by power. The Domitian Games. The Mark of the Beast. The, 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 the Temple of Artemis. They, they were surrounded by the political archives. And essentially Paul is writing into that and he's like, you people think you understand power. You don't have a clue. I'm writing to you about real power. Nothing voted it in. And so nothing can ever vote it out. It was here before all things and it'll be here after all things. I'm talking to you about real power and I'm inviting you to get plugged into that. And by the way, that power is filling everything in every way. Even the people in our city that we don't think is a part Jesus loves them. He's reaching out to them. And he's calling. That's right. And, and, and Paul, Paul's not the only one. Paul's the main one. But, but there's a lot of people in the New Testament that, that brought these sort of observations. Romans 11.36, Paul in a different book. Um, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all 
things. I will look that word up in Greek, all, and the word all is actually all. <laughs> and when all says all, let's leave all all, because all is best when we leave it all. If we make all not all, we run the risk of us not being at all. So when all says all, let's leave all all, because all is all, and all is better when it's all, so let's leave all all. <laughs> <laughs> In John chapter 1, he says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, in Him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. All, all, all. In Colossians, he says it this way, Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. you got to understand, in their culture, firstborns get justice, the secondborns get Mercy, always. Firstborns get justice, secondborns get mercy, always. Firstborns get justice, secondborns get mercy. Which, so when the Bible talks about being born again, that's what it means. It means when all of us were born, we were born in Adam, for Adam is the firstborn. But, but, but when we get saved, we get moved from in Adam to in Christ, for Christ is the second Adam. So in the first Adam, you get justice, but in the second Adam, you get mercy. So, so firstborns get justice, and secondborns get Mercy. And he says, he's the firstborn over all creation. So wait a minute, who's getting the justice? He is. Who's getting the mercy? All creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says that over and over and over again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead. Hang on, who's getting the justice? He is. Who's getting the judge? Who's getting the mercy? Dead people, right? And so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness well in him and through him to reconcile to himself some things. No, to reconcile all things to himself. What is the church? It is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Why? Because we are to be active participants in the reconciliation of all things. That, are, that is what we are called to be. Now, this has some huge implications. Number one, Jesus is already at work in any mission field we could possibly serve in. He's already there. He's already doing his thing. Our job is not to bring Jesus to Pakistan or Burma or Thailand or Havelock North or Hastings or Napier. Our job is to get into those cities and find out where is the Spirit of Jesus at work and cooperate with Him instead of manipulating Him. Our job is to get into the middle of those things. Maybe we can say it this way. Our job is not to deliver belief in Jesus like a pizza. It is to proclaim what has been there all along and help people give Him a name. It is that. You see in the most obvious place in Scripture, you see in Acts 17, when Paul shows up and he says, I see idols everywhere, but I see one idol to an unknown God, and I'll, let's give him a name. You've been worshiping him for years. I guess it's about time we give him a name. It is that. It is that. The church, the church's response to resurrection power is to affirm it everywhere and invite people to connect with that. Ephesians 1.22, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what is the church? It's the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Which goes, it doesn't go against, but it's not a definition of church I've heard. You realize that this definition of church, what defines the church is never our doctrinal rightness. You never one time in the New Testament say, you hear anybody say, hey, you're the church, you're supposed to be the rightest group of people in Hastings. Nope. What you see is a, a compelling and a challenge to be the kindest 
group of people in Hastings. The people in Hastings have a lot more Napier, wherever you're from. The, the, the people of those places should look at us and look at our churches and say, you know what, I'm not sure if they're right or wrong. That's still up for debate and discussion. And that's, that's actually a side note. What I can say is that if there is a creator, the fullness of him is in those people. Look at how they treat each other. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they look at how they look at how they live. Look at how they die. Look at how they argue. They would never go to the internet and hurt each other. They handle everything in love behind a closed door. Wow, I would love to be a part of a group of people like that. That would be awesome, right? Right? We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our lives should look to the public what it looks like for the spirit of the risen Christ to be active inside all the time. We should be so compelling in our living that the people driving down that road right now, they don't really want to know about our doctrine, but they want to know about what God are you a part of. Because I can tell you this, whatever it is, whether you're right or whether you're wrong, that's irrelevant. I want to live like you. The fullness of Him. He fills everything in every way. Now what are the counter pictures to this? The counter pictures are more denominations. More us and them. More in and out. More discussions on who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. Which, by the way, is above all of our pay grades. In the first century, when the church was really thriving, they had one doctrine. Jesus is the Christ, he was crucified, the resurrection is great. That's about it. Everything else was really being worked out after discussion. More denominations, more us and them, more in and out, more trying to decide who God is for and who God isn't for. I thought that was established in the book of Joshua. Remember, Joshua said, hey, Lord, are you on our side? And he's like, please, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm on my side. God delights in God. Are you kidding me? He's not on anybody's side. God is for everybody. He is filling everything in every way. Which leads me to this question. Are we shrinking Jesus to meet our expectations instead of embracing all that he's up to? It's good. When we, when, when we come across somebody... And they're saying something we haven't really heard before. Do we instantly recoil because, man, man, if they challenge our belief system, it's like challenging God. No, your belief system is your belief system. It is not God. God is God. And if your belief system crumbled to the ground tomorrow, God would survive it. <laughs> because he's everything in every way. Now, let me say it a few different ways, okay? A big Jesus requires a big church. And I don't mean big numbers necessarily. I mean big capacity people. Let me say a few different ways that you pick up what you like. A church that can hold all Jesus is up to requires big people. A church that holds Jesus is a church that affirms what you are already and invites you to participate in the process. A church that holds what Jesus is up to doesn't make you become like them before they accept you. They accept you right where you are because the Spirit of the risen Christ is already working you because you're everything in every way. And they invite you to get a shovel out and dig up what's been yours all along. They help you name it. A big church that holds all that Jesus is up to names what is already true and invites you to participate. Now once again, once again, we can struggle with language on this. And if I said things like, we need to get Jesus out of the box, everybody in this room would go, Amen. right? Nobody would disagree with that. But what does that even mean? Let's put some language on this. How do, you know, how do you know if you have a big capacity church? Let me give you a couple of ideas on this. You have a big capacity church if, one, there are people you can name right now whose experience with Jesus changed their life dramatically. You don't necessarily have a big capacity church if you have all your doctrines straight. That just makes you potentially boring, pedantic, and uncompelling. What makes you a compelling, dynamic environment is that if someone shows up at your church 
and you watch them grow. That there's someone in the last 30 days that was here, and you saw the Spirit of the risen Christ touch them, and now they're here. And you can name it. That is compelling. That's right. As leaders, you can tell everything you want to know about somebody by the questions they ask and the stories they tell. And all of us, all of us have had that gut-dropping feeling when someone asks us a question, and just the nature of their question tells us, you're going to be a problem. Right? Like if someone comes to my table, like I normally have a resource table set up. I don't tonight. I normally do. If someone comes to my table and says, you know, so what do you believe anyway? Well, just the nature of that question tells me you're boring, lame, and pedantic. Right? If, someone, if in your churches, if in your visitors' lounges, right? So every, every church has a visitors' lounge. If you don't, you should. Right? And so what happens is, is the, new, the leaders of the church are meeting some new family that just moved into town and they're trying your church. And, and you sit down with them and, and you can tell everything by the questions they ask whether you hope they come back. Right? And, and so if the question they ask is, is to tell me your 15 fundamental beliefs. Everything in you goes, Oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, how boring are you? <laughs> but if you sat down with a new family, and they said, thanks so much for having coffee with us. We're brand new to Hastings. And you know what? Um, we're gonna, we were going to try some different churches. Um, we really felt at home today. But here's what we're really interested in. Um, we're interested if this is a real life-changing sort of church. Can you can you point out two people to us right here that you know were changed by the Spirit of God in this place? Can you tell me? Can you tell me their stories? Someone asked you that question. Put them on staff. Because something about that is like, it's good. Wow. You don't have a big capacity church if your systems are all correct. You don't have a big capacity church if your programs are to the T. You don't necessarily have a big capacity church if all your doctrines are well spelled out. That just makes you boring. What, you, what, what makes you a big capacity church is when you can name life change. Yeah. Let me say it another way. I met blank, and their story was blank before their awareness of Jesus. But once they became aware of the Spirit of the risen Christ in their life, boy, I've seen them take off. When we tell stories like that, that is compelling. Maybe we can say it this way, number three, you know you have a big capacity church. If your community can disagree and discuss without disgrace. If we can disagree and discuss without disgrace. So somebody, um, somebody called my office a few weeks ago and they wanted to know where my statement of faith was. Um, and so my, my office said, look, you know, why don't we send you some free downloads and then you can listen and sort of figure out if we're your cup of tea or not, we'll just give them to you for free. The person, no, I don't want to listen to you until I figure out if I agree with you. <laughs> and and, and the, the manager of the office just went, did I just hear you right? Did you just say that you have to agree with someone before you even listen to them? That literally makes you the most boring person on the planet. <laughs> like, honestly, if, if we can't hear somebody that we don't agree 100%, if, you don't, if the last 10 books you read were 10 books that you totally agreed with, I would suggest we're not growing. Well enough. A, a, a big capacity church can disagree and discuss without um, disgrace. Maybe we say it this way. Um, you're at times troubled with how big and powerful the power of Jesus is. Like there are things that you see Jesus doing that bothers you. That's when you know you're a big capacity church. When you see when you see things Jesus is doing, you're like, I didn't think Jesus could do that. That is when we're starting to arrive. Um, let me tell you a story to illustrate this. One of my best friends is Richard Crisco. Uh, and you might, if you're older, you might remember that name. Richard Crisco was the youth pastor um, at the Brownsville Revival in, in the early 90s. So there was John Patrick, and then there was uh, Steve Smith, I think. And, then, and, and Richard Crisco was one of those, 
the, the three of the four guys that was putting that on. And, and we, we become very, very close. Richard and I are, are really good buddies. And, uh, and I was talking to Richard about it one time. He said, but the thing people didn't see is we worked from 7 a.m. till 2.30 a.m. every day. And we, we would leave the church at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and we would have to be back before 7 the next day because there was 10,000 people lining up. There was, there was just no... He said, he said six years, six days a week, that's what we did. 7 a.m. to 2.30 in the morning. He said, then people would say, man, I wish I was you. What? You know, like, you know. So he said, but when God's moving, God's moving. So I was having dinner with him, and this is what I asked him. I said, Pastor Richard, can you tell me one story from the Brownsville Revival that you did not have a file folder for? In other words, there was no place in your brain that thought that was possible. He said, yes. He said, I got one right off the top of my head. I said, and I thought it was going to be raising the dead or something like that. He has done it. He said, there was one night. He said, we were praying for people. It was 2.30 in the morning. He said, I could barely walk. I was so tired. He said that God was moving. And he said, there was still a line of people waiting to be prayed for. And he said, I looked up, and in the balcony, there was a group of five young men, probably around the age of 20. And they were doing Saturday Night Live skits making fun of us. Right? So, so what they would do is that they would stand one of their friends up, and then the, and then the other guy would go, touch! And they and it was all it was all to make fun. I mean, so they had a small crowd laughing and cutting up, and they were doing all these things like throwing their friends over the pews and just different things. It was all making fun. And, and Richard told me he said, "I don't know if I was just tired or what." He said, "But I looked up and it made me so mad." He said, "I just prayed underneath my breath, Lord, send a bear to eat them." <laughs> And he said, they were just under there making fun of us. You can't believe it. And he said, I'm, I'm just praying and praying. I'm so tired. And he said, finally, I looked over to the right, and they had come down to the front. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> right, you're, you know, you making fun of us up in the balcony, that's one thing. But now you're down here making fun of us? I don't think so. That ain't happening. He said, so I called security and gave them the following sort of thing. And so Richard went over to them, and he said, guys, Listen, it's late. I've had enough of this. That's enough. Right? And he said the leader of the group, the leader of the group said, um, uh, 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 please, please, please help us. And Pastor Richard said, what happened to you guys? And he said, I, 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 I don't know if you noticed, but um, we were up there making fun of you. And Richard said, I did notice. <laughs> and he said, well, we set up all these skits. And I was praying for people, like pretending to pray for people. And they're falling all over the place and whatnot. And he said, um, and everybody was laughing. He said, but this is our friend. I, I can't remember his name. Let's call him Joe. He said, this is our friend. And um, our friend was in a, uh, a motorbike accident. And he's been paralyzed from his waist down. Um, ever since then, and he was going to be a part of the skit. Like we had like strings and stuff, and we were going to make them all like a puppet um, and, and things like this. And then he said, uh, he said, but when I prayed for them, he said I prayed for him, and uh, he walked. Chat about it, and I said, "Well, where's there not a folder for that?" He said, 
God uses an atheist making fun of him to heal another atheist? That's supposed That's bothersome. It sort of wrecks the whole theology of the God of it sort of it sort of uncages Jesus a little bit that Jesus is allowed to be what he wants to do. And we have moments like that. Instead, of, and here's where we devalue it: is trying to hit scriptures to figure it out, as if everything God does is in the Bible somehow. No, no, God just does what He wants to do. And you have a huge capacity church if you have stories like that. If you have if you have moments like, wait a minute, this happened, and God honest, that bothered me. That bothered me. And you know what? I'm not even achieving it by trying to figure it out. I'm just getting that. That bothered me. That bothered me. Um, when you, let, let me say it this way. When you struggle for language, you use metaphors. And so one of the metaphors the New Testament writers used for Jesus is a lion. They said, you know what? If you want to understand Jesus, he's sort of like a lion. Now don't panic. They also said he was like a lion. Right? So once again, when you're struggling for words, you use metaphors. Lions, lambs, whatever. Right? Um, so... They said Jesus was like a lion. Which leads me to this observation. A lion doesn't make a good mascot. <laughs> the, only way, the only way to keep a lion in your house is to cage it. But if you cage it, you don't love it. You, can't, you surely can't domesticate a lion. Even if you had a lion from birth and it loved you, and it grew up in your house, eventually it's going to tear stuff up. Why? It's a lion. That's what it does. You can't domesticate a lion, nor can you cage the lion. The only appropriate atmosphere for a lion is the wild. I think for the church to go where it needs to go, we need to uncage the lion. We have often tried to domesticate the lion. Jesus, you're welcome to work within our 15 fundamentals. Jesus, you're welcome to work within our system of faith we've developed to control you. Jesus, you're welcome to work as long as you don't stretch us too much. As long as we can find the exact scripture where you did that in the Bible, you're welcome to work. And all we're doing is domesticating and domesticating, and then we wonder why our house gets torn up every now and then, because Jesus is going to do what he's going to do. And instead of trying to figure it out and cheaping it, why don't we just participate with what's been going on since before the foundation of the world, and when we need to give it a name, we give it a name. Maybe we should uncage the Let's say it this way. Let me, let me give you a couple questions to wrestle with as leaders, and then we'll go. A couple questions. One, what is your story of how you encountered the resurrected Christ and it made a radical difference? How, let me say it another way. Where would you be tonight if Jesus not touched your life? Because if we ever lose sight of that, we'll run the risk of looking down on people who aren't where we are. I love Deuteronomy 26. It says, every year before you give your Torah offering, put it, put your first fruits in a basket, and then before you give it, say, in a loud voice, my father was a wandering Arabian. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. Had God not touched my life, I would still be a homeless refugee slave. I wonder what year my father was a wandering Arabian story was. Where would you be? Have we lost sight of where we have been? But let's say it, number two. What was your last emotional response to the last baptism you saw? Like when you see people get baptized, let me say this way, does your church do baptisms well? Because if there's anything you should do well, it would be that. Why else do we exist? But to have people get up and say, hey, I was here, but the power of the risen Christ touched my life, and now I'm here, and I think a testimony of it by dipping in this water. 
That's moving. And if we've lost our emotional connection with changed lives, and we've traded that in for being doctrinally correct, and we wonder why people think we're boring, there's nothing boring about a changed life. Lots of boring things about outlines. Number three, what was your emotional response to the last time you saw someone experience the power of God? Have we lost that? Have we taken it for granted? These are critical things to our faith. I got the opportunity to do a conference a few months back with Clark Taylor. Now, I don't know if you know Clark Taylor, but flip, right? And what the leader of the conference told me is they said, we want you to do most of the preaching, and when it comes time to pray for the sick, we want him to do most of the praying. And that makes sense, because if I had a prayer line and he had a prayer line, I'd have two people feeling sorry for me, and he'd have a line to the road. So I did the majority of the preaching, and then when it comes time to pray for people, I handed it to him. And, and he was doing his thing, man. I mean, like... It, Everybody's seen Clark work, right? Like, like, so he's doing his thing. He's like, oh, there's somebody right in front of my hand. And my God, you've got pain somewhere. And then someone come up, you know, oh, it's me. And, and it was for 20 minutes. It was 25 minutes. It was fairly normal stuff. Like necks and backs and eyes and knees and lungs and things like this. And you might be thinking, well, it's just a neck. Well, it's just a neck unless it's your neck. And then if it's your neck, it's the most important neck ever, right? <laughs> People are doing this. But, but by Clark standards... Fairly normal, right? And I could tell, I've been around Clark a lot. I could tell. He was all the way over the side of the room, and it was a big room. It was huge, hundreds of people. And, and he was done. I could tell his, um, his body language, he was done. So he's walking back to hand the mic back, and he's actually saying things like, oh, thank you guys, and he's fixing the hand the mic back. And then he turns around, and there was two guys in their 30s carrying a very old woman, okay? Like, picture the oldest woman imaginable. Like, she had to be... If she wasn't 90, she needs to eat more broccoli, okay? And so, and so they're, they're, they're carrying her. Like, I mean, like, and, and in, no, in no way am I making fun of her. I, I want, I'm just trying to get you to see how severe this was. She was shaking violently. It was this kind of thing. And it looked like a grand mal seizure, but it wasn't quite that severe. And oh, full of faith, Shane. Here I am on the front row. I'm so full of faith. All I could think was, oh, that poor lady. All I can think of was, wow, she's old, right? <laughs> like, I mean, old. <laughs> Clark, Clark wasn't moved by that at all. Clark, Clark goes, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, uh, walks over and he says, what's the matter with you? And she says, I have severe Parkinson's, which explained the, like, you can't believe how violent the shaking was. And the most gentle thing I've ever seen him do, because Clark can be quite forceful, but I thought to myself, boy, don't go forceful here. <laughs> and my breaker, she might just turn to dust. Like, <laughs> like, 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 so Clark, in the most soft thing I've ever seen him do, he took her by the hands and he said, oh, he said, these arms and legs and hands, they'll quit shaking now. And they'll torment you no more. Well, she went from to wow. her face went like she was surprised at herself. Like wow, like it was a little tremor, right? But she went from real violent to a little tremor to the point where her face was like whoa, right? And old full of face, Shane. I said, wow. 
I said, wow, I said, oh, close enough is good enough. Oh, you better walk away from that right now. <laughs> 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 like, no one knows just a river You need to sort of take what you got there. That was amazing. I was so amazed and so moved. I, was, I actually felt myself hoping I didn't like say an obscenity out loud. I was like, be like and I wasn't aiming to ask the pastor, did I just swear? I didn't <laughs> <laughs> Clark was not happy. Clark said, Oh lady, that's not a good look. You can't even hold a cup of tea. I don't think God wants you like that. And he took her by the hand again and prayed the same exact prayer. Be still. Faith rose in the room. He prayed for people another 20 minutes. Wow. 20 minutes later, she was able to hold a cup of tea. Wow. Wow. Now, I remember, I was sitting on the front row. That thing marked me. I need marks like that. Yeah. Yeah. We, listen, we don't need more belief in Jesus. Demons believe in Jesus. We need more experience with Jesus. Right? It's actually good. So you look at that. When you ever have a crisis of faith, my last crisis of faith, I'll just be open with you, I had a crisis of faith. I had a moment where I thought, what if this is all focus? What if we're wrong? And I had the crisis of faith when I saw my granny in a coffin. I was very close to her. So I see my granny in a coffin, I was like, what if we're the ones that are wrong? What if she's not okay? And I am very well educated. And I am very well read. And no matter, no matter how that true that is, I, in that moment, I couldn't think my way back to faith. It's at that moment that I remembered seeing a blind eye healed in Fiji. And I remembered that. And I, and I marked that. And I went back to that in my imagination. And I thought, you know what? Whether, whether I can think it through or not, that is real. Yeah. That's true. It's moments like that yeah. that your church will mark and go, you know what? You know what? Being doctrinally correct, that can knock you around. But I can tell you, that is real. May we never lose our emotional connection to seeing God touch people. Let's say it this way. Would we rather attempt to contain Christ to our own ideas and values, or would we rather see the experiences of people encountering the fullness of Him who fills all things? Well, I'll say it another way. Are we willing to hunger for the experience of God for people? So what are we here for today? Let me say it this way. The church is here to point you and remind you of the pre-existing power that manifested in the resurrected Christ and is now looking to touch you. That's why we exist. We are here to remind people and point people to the pre-existing power that was manifested in the resurrected Christ and invite people to participate with that. He's already at work in them already. <coughs> Let's say it this way. At our church, the lion is roaming about the full power. And that's the decision we need to make. Lord, disturb us. Good. Do, 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 Lord, free my mind from having to explain everything. Lord, actually do something in our midst that is actually unexplainable. Yeah. How does an atheist pray for another atheist and they both get healed? How does that happen? Disturb us. Ruin us. Do something that expands our box. Lord, we are letting you out of the cage. Forgive us for domesticating you. No wonder we feel tore up. Lions tear things up. Lord, we release you into the wild. And we free you to do whatever you're going to do. Fill everything in every way and give us the courage to participate with that instead of manipulating that. Mm -hmm. May we be people who affirm the presence of the risen Christ in every person we meet. Mm -hmm.
regardless of ritual, regardless of sacrifice, regardless of where they are, may we invite them wherever they are. The atheist, they're everything in every way. May we affirm the love of God for the atheist. If, if an atheist was here tonight, I'm sure they're not. But if an atheist was here tonight, I would say this to you. I would say, even as an atheist, I affirm that the Spirit of Christ loves you and He is at work in you because you're everything in every way. And I invite you to take the next one step that you're comfortable taking, participating with what the risen Christ is doing in your heart. I invite you to participate with that. May we affirm the Spirit of the risen Christ at work in everything in every way. Uncage the lion and watch what God will do to our churches. Because our churches need more experiences with Jesus. Things that fuck our world and unfaze the lion. May we be Amen. Thanks so much for letting me be part of your night. I hope you're really blessed by that. Until I see you next time. Yeah.